Well, hello everyone. I am Laura Ellsworth welcoming you to Prairie Doc Radio. This is a program of the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 founded by Dr. Rick Holm. We are here to answer your medical questions, so give us a call at 605-692-1430. 605-692-1430. With us today is Dr. Kelly Evans to answer your medical questions. Dr. Evans' specialty is internal medicine. She works with the Avera Medical Group Brookings and volunteers as part of the Prairie Doc team of physicians. Good morning, Dr. Evans. Good morning, Laura. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for being here with yes, us today. Yes, happy to be here. Absolutely. We have kind of an Ask Anything all right. show today. Love it. So we're just going to ask Dr. Evans all sorts of questions. And I know we already have um, at least one call that came mm-hmm. in before the show with a question. So today is a great day. If you have a question... Um, and we love it when you call early, so we have to make sure we have time to get to those questions. Yes. Give us a call at 605-692-1430. So we're going to jump right in, Dr. Evans. Uh, this one is a 70-year-old female, has asthma and celiac disease. Mm-hmm. Where does she schedule the shingle shot okay. into or around getting additional COVID booster shots? Okay, so lots of parts to this question. Okay. So what I would say is this person would qualify as someone who we would say has underlying health conditions, mm-hmm. the asthma specifically when it comes to COVID-19, I would say. Okay. Um, but isn't immunocompromised. Don't have any reason from this um, to think that she's immunocompromised. When we talk about immunocompromised, people, we are talking about people who are either on a medication that compromises their immune system. So most of those p- people would be people getting currently treated for cancer or an autoimmune disease, um, celiac um, patients. It, it is considered an autoimmune condition, but they're de- generally not on immunosuppressive therapy. They just follow a gluten-free diet. Okay. Um, so she would be sort of in, at this point, in, when we're talking about COVID vaccine recommendations among the general adult population. So recommendation for this patient would be to have gotten a booster dose of vaccine, meaning if she got either the Moderna or Pfizer as her initial vaccines to have gotten a third dose at least five months after her second dose of vaccine, or if it was the Johnson & Johnson to have gotten a booster vaccine at least two months after that. She would not, under current recommendations, be someone that we would recommend a fourth dose of vaccine for. So I'm not sure if that's what she's asking about okay. or not. So there is a recommendation out there for moderately or severely immunocompromised people. So the people that I just kind of talked about. Um, so people on medications that compromise the immune system or if they have a true um, immune deficiency. And that could mean something like um, HIV or um, a genetic immunodeficiency. Um, those people currently are recommended to get a fourth dose. So that's another yet another booster dose at least three months after the third dose. Okay, It's a rather, relatively small number of people. Now, I will say that, is it possible that that guidance will change? Will will at some point there be a recommendation for, you know, you and I and all adults to get a, yet another booster dose? It's possible, Laura. I think yep. we, that's a question we don't know the answer to yet. 
probably depends on what we find as far as what happens with our measurable immunity after our booster dose. And we're just not far enough out from that time that people have been getting that in mass yet. Um, and what happens with COVID itself? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. rates right now, luckily, are very low. But as we all know, we shouldn't pretend that we're going to predict what's going to happen with this um, virus going forward. So I think it's it's possible that there could be a recommendation for a fourth dose, either a certain time from our third dose or maybe seasonally in the future, um, meaning like in the fall, if, if we think that COVID is going to be a seasonal endemic virus years ahead, we might that might be something that changes. Got it. Right now, though, from what I know, this person would not have a fourth dose recommended. Okay. So... I, I think the question is, if she hasn't gotten a, a third dose of COVID vaccine, absolutely go ahead and get it. Yep. Um, there are no longer any recommendations for spreading out a COVID vaccine from any other vaccine. Okay. Now, I will say the shingles vaccine specifically, um, that's a- approved for anyone over 50. And it, so it would be recommended for the 70-year-old person. Um the shingles vaccine can have side effects, not unlike some of the COVID vaccines. So it's not uncommon for someone after the the Shingrix shingles vaccine to have a day of muscle aches or flu-like symptoms or a low-grade fever or something like that. Again, it's something that passes, like we've counseled people on the COVID vaccine. But when people have asked me the specific question, I might say it might not be a bad idea to do them at different times, just so that you, like, if you do have that reaction, you kind of know what, which vaccine was the culprit of it. And maybe it saves you from really being run down for that sure. couple of days afterwards. Um, but there's there's no specific guidance on that. And the shingles vaccine is a two-dose vaccine, the Shingrix. So if you got one today, you would get the second one. It would be recommended in two to six months thereafter. Okay. Okay. It does take a little scheduling and thinking it through. If you're, it does. Yeah. So yeah. that's good. It's and good it's, to, you know, some people would might say, I'm just going to do it and I don't have anything to do the next couple of days. If I right. feel crummy, that's fine. Um, but, you know, I, I think there being no urgency about getting them both right this second, if it's feasible to spread them out, you know, it, that's not unreasonable. It would be very up to the patient. Okay. Sounds great. Well, we are going to go to our first break shortly. We thank you for listening to Prairie Doc Radio on KBRK and on our podcast. Call us now at 605-692-1430 with any medical questions you would like us to address. We will return following this informative message from the Avera Medical Group. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. I'm Laura Ellsworth, and Prairie Doc physician Kelly Evans is here to answer our medical questions. Give us a call at 605-692-1430. 692-1430. We have another question from a caller. Um, this caller says they're five and a half weeks into recovery from COVID. Mm-hmm. He's very weak and has weight loss. Any suggestions to how he may speed up the recovery? Okay. Um, so this is not an uncommon scenario that we've seen. I think there there can be a lot of variables that go into this, the age of the patient, the other medical conditions that they already have, the medicines that they take for those things. Um, for this sort of more vague systemic after COVID symptoms, like it sounds like maybe appetite and, and, and weight loss and weakness, I don't know that there's a specific therapy that I would recommend 
recommend across the board for a patient going through that. The weight loss can be kind of multifactorial. So we can see that after any sort of severe illness, but COVID uniquely also in some people, as we know, causes some loss of taste and smell. So I think that contributes in some patients that eating is just less enjoyable. People have poor appetite when they can't taste and smell things. So sometimes that's a component and you just have to start scheduling some calorie intake. Mm -hmm. So if if this was my patient, depending on what their weight was and, and that kind of thing, I would probably be counseling them very individually. What are you eating? Should we be scheduling any dietary supplements just to make sure that you don't have any further weight loss? Um, I would probably review their current medications because sometimes if people do lose a significant amount of weight, for example, the blood pressure medicines or diabetes medicines that they needed a couple months ago may not be serving them well. Maybe they're causing their blood pressure to be too low or their blood sugars to be too low, which can contribute to feeling pretty crummy. So I think, me, you know, if you're this far out from COVID infection, if you haven't seen your primary care physician and you're still having these symptoms, it's worthy of going in, maybe doing some review of symptoms, some basic lab work if if uh, recommended, and a medication review to see if anything should change to help that person start feeling better. And then I think, you know, there's they didn't include anything about having shortness of breath or any pulmonary symptoms. So I would say just being kind to oneself, but starting to gently get back into some activity and exercise would be recommended. So, you know, get out and take a short walk, go as far as you can go and and start trying to do that regularly day to day to make sure that you're not losing any muscle mass is also an important part of recovery. Okay. Yeah, it is. um, I'm sure so frustrating when people kind of like I'm this far out. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for so many people, it can be a quick somewhat quick recovery definitely from COVID. Mm-hmm. but we do hear about these that have these kind of longer yeah, recoveries we do and it's not even always associated with severe illness so sometimes okay. we see people having just longer lasting recovery time even when they've had what we call mild illness sort okay. of a bad cold or something like that so there's not necessarily rhyme or reason to it um, but this patient's definitely not alone this is something that we've seen quite a lot of got it mm. okay and it is good if you are experiencing some of these longer symptoms it sounds like it is good to go maybe just check with your provider definitely. and not not okay. necessarily because we have a one-size-fits-all fix for this sort of post-COVID problem, Um, but because depending on the other things that might be in play, we also, we all, we want to make sure there's nothing else going on, of course, because sometimes, you know, there can be coincidental things and we don't want to miss something. Um, But also, you know, there may be things that we can do for an individual patient that might help them along their recovery. Okay. Sounds good. All right, we have another question. I have a friend coming to visit with Crohn's disease. What are some things I should consider in my meal planning, if anything? Yeah, great question. I think that's a very um, conscientious question to ask. So Crohn's disease specifically is a type of inflammatory bowel disease. So this is an autoimmune disease in which the immune system attacks various places in the gut. Everyone with Crohn's is a little kind of different symptomatically, just depending on where their disease is active, because sometimes people have disease even up in as high as the mouth in the Mm. gut and more commonly in the small and large intestine. Um, Crohn's disease itself doesn't have any specific across the board dietary restrictions, I wouldn't say, but certainly depending on where disease occurs, people may have some kind of 
more food preferences or sensitivities. So when it comes to Crohn's disease, I think I would just recommend asking the individual patient if, or excuse me, the indiv- this friend mm-hmm. in advance, are there things that you like to avoid eating, et cetera? Because I think that's just a very courteous thing to do. Um, but they may answer that there's there's nothing in particular that they avoid, especially if disease is well controlled. Oh, okay. There are other um, things that are different. We, we had a question that included celiac disease, for example. So right. patients with c- true celiac disease are intolerant to all gluten. So anything that includes gluten or wheat would have to be avoided um, to minimize their symptoms. I would say patients with knowledge of those things are generally very savvy about what they can and can't eat. And most of them have learned how to manage eating in any setting pretty, sure. pretty well. Um, but I think as if you're hosting someone, always very courteous to just ask the question up front. Okay, great info. Well, it's time for us to go to our next break. We thank you for listening to Prairie Doc Radio on KBRK and on our podcast. Call us now at 605-692-1430 with any medical concerns you would like us to address. Prairie Doc programs are available as a podcast. Just look for Prairie Doc wherever you get your podcast. Today's program will be added to the podcast soon. We will return following this informative message from the Avera Medical Group. Influenza has made its appearance. If you have not received a flu shot, get one now. Symptoms of influenza are fever, fatigue, cough, runny nose, body aches, and decreased appetite. Generally, influenza makes you feel much worse than the common cold. If you have questions about influenza, call your provider at the Avera Medical Group Brookings, 697-9500. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. I'm Laura Ellsworth, and Prairie Doc physician Kelly Evans is here to answer our medical questions. Give us a call at 605-692-1430. 605-692-1430. Dr. Evans, we have a question. Um... Someone who's on a mental health hold, how does a mental health hold work? Yeah, so I'll, I'll do my best. Okay. I'm not an expert in psychiatry, and I certainly don't work in this inpatient psychiatry world. But um, when, when it comes to mental health hold, this is sort of a legal term. So this may vary state to state. Uh, but the basics are that states generally have laws on the books in which if a patient presents to a healthcare setting in which they are deemed by professional assessment to be an imminent danger, either because of threats of self-harm or or suicidal planning or thoughts, um, or an imminent threat to others, then something like a mental health hold is, is Um, an available tool to use. Usually those holds last for like up to 72 hours um, and then need reassessment. But that's probably the gist of of the the question there is is that it's, it's sort of a legal term that is used in those settings. Most of the time when when patients present, for example, in the emergency room and maybe they've had a suicide attempt or have are having suicidal planning and so a loved one has brought them in, a lot of those patients will be voluntarily go to an inpatient um, behavioral health or psychiatric care um, hospital. And so that does not involve a mental health hold. That's, this is specifically talking about what would be involuntary. So someone who who is is evaluated, and is thought to have really imminent risk of harm, um, 
like I said, most often to themselves and they would refuse to voluntarily go. And so that's when those mental health holds are used. Okay. That's the best answer I got. Sure. (laughs) And so then after you mentioned maybe um, up to 72 hours. Yeah. After that, what what are some ways that we can help those patients um, either with their primary care or like you mentioned a psychiatrist what are kind of the normal follow-ups you know I think in a lot of those cases in a lot of those cases what may proceed to happen is that the 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 person can get some counseling and maybe they then voluntarily choose to continue that admission Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to it being an involuntary hold and then I would say beyond that 72 hours there are still legal measures in in place that um, care providers can attempt to keep people as an inpatient involuntarily, but they're sort of a harder threshold to get to, if that makes sense. Sure. And I, that's, again, that's something that is just outside my spectrum of what I do. Um, but there, there are sort of legal measures in place that obviously it's, it's harder to do because obviously individuals have, have rights. And right. so it should be a high threshold to, to keep people against their will. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in a lot of cases, like I said, in those cases of suicidal thoughts or ideation, they might either continue to um, voluntarily do that, or in some cases, the threat kind of passes. I mean, in some cases, these sort of big suicidal risks are in, in some ways impulsive, and that really imminent high-risk time might pass within that time frame, and then they can be safely treated in the outpatient setting. Okay. Great psychiatry question. Right. I, I, hope that I, I hope that I did it justice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, that's good. Good introduction to that. Um, excellent. I just want to remind people, if you have a question, give us a call at 605-692-1430. 605-692-1430. Another question directed to us. A man is in his 70s, recently went swimming. It's been over a week, and he still feels like he has water in his ear. <laughs> is there anything... Uh, he can do to help with that. Um, so hard to say for sure, Laura. So okay. sometimes this is not what we would call swimmer's ear. So some people hear the term swimmer's ear, and that actually is a tr- is a sort of lay term for otitis externa, an infection of the outer ear, basically the oh. skin within the ear canal. Okay. That can occur in these settings, but sure. usually it's very painful. So if this patient develops pain, fever, et cetera, they should definitely be seen. Sometimes um, they're, so what they're describing is a feeling of water in the external ear. It's possible that either if there's a foreign body or if there's a lot of wax sort of trapping that water in place, that might be contributing. So if it's been a week, it might be worth just having, having their um, local practitioner take a look at it and see if there's anything to be safely removed. Okay. We really caution people against putting foreign objects in their own ears, digging for wax, etc., um, just because of the risk. Of, of perforation of the tympanic membrane when you can't visualize it well. Um, but, you know, just I, I'm sure this patient has always kind of done this this trick in which you can push on sort of this little piece in the front of your ear, which can cover the ear canal. And if you kind of do that and rub back and forth, it creates a little suction. Uh, um, but yeah. that's a pretty natural thing that people figure out. So I'm sure that they've already done that. Yeah. <laughs> so give a little rub. And, yeah. um, but if, you're still but if it's been a week and they're still kind of uncomfortable with it, it might be having it worth having it looked at to see if there's anything that ought to be removed okay Okay. all right thanks for the advice sure all right it's time for us to go to our final break we thank you for listening to prairie doc radio on kbrk and on our podcast 
If you have a question you would like us to address, give us a call at 605-692-1430. 605-692-1430. We will return following this informative message from the Avera Medical Group. Tobacco can lead to tobacco, nicotine dependence, and serious health problems. Quitting smoking has immediate as well as long-term benefits for you and your loved ones. Make the decision to be smoke-free. Stopping smoking is associated with many health benefits. If you smoke, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. That's 784-8669. Or call the Avera Medical Group Brookings for help to quit smoking today. 697-9500. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. I'm Laura Ellsworth, and Prairie Doc physician Kelly Evans is here to answer our medical questions. Give us a call at 605-692-1430. 605-692-1430. Thank you for the questions that um, have been coming in today. Mm-hmm. I wanted to take a moment to reflect on Dr. Johnston's essay, um, her Prairie Doc Perspective essay that's in this week's paper She talks about caring for expectant moms. Mm -hmm. She talks about some of the risks of pregnancy and the importance of addressing the mother's mental and physical health as well. Yeah. It's a a big time in in a woman's life and in a family's life when you... have a pregnancy mm-hmm. involved and how to care for them. Yeah. It made me think about, I was recently with my book club and we were discussing a m- story where a mother died from what the author called blood poisoning okay. shortly after giving birth, okay. um, which led to a group in our uh, discussion mm-hmm. about sepsis yeah. and multiple experiences with women um, mm-hmm. and people they know. Mm-hmm. So what what is sepsis? And is that and do you think that was correct to jump from blood poisoning by yeah, the author to sepsis? I think so. Let okay. me just ask one follow-up question. Yes. Is, was the book like a historical fiction? Yes, yes. historical fiction. So yes. this is fascinating, actually, um, when it comes to um, sort of in history rates of maternal death after delivery, historically really high, as we probably, you know, maybe know from, from reading or looking at family histories. A lot of women died after childbirth. And obviously, childbirth... Much less so in the modern world um, Mm -hmm. when a lot of women give birth at at the hospital and um, we know more about what to do about complications of pregnancy and labor and delivery. Um, But historically, 100 years ago and more, very common for women to die as a result of childbirth or during childbirth. One reason was infection that occurred sort of through the birth canal. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's probably what it's referring to, blood poisoning. Um, And that was back at a time when we didn't understand microbiology. We didn't even really know what bacteria were probably. Mm -hmm. Um, So the, the terms were different. But women would develop fever and this syndrome of what we know now as sepsis. Um, probably within 48 hours after childbirth. Um, There's a great medical history story about um, an Austrian physician who sort of discovered the discrepancy between a couple of uh, maternity wards as as far as their post-birth maternal death rates and found that the, the big difference was that one was served by midwives the one that had the higher death rate was served by physicians in training who would go back and forth between delivering babies on the maternity ward and dissecting um, cadavers. Oh, 
Mm-hmm. So this this and this again is before germ theory. They right. didn't know they didn't know about bacteria, but they basically instituted a sanitization procedure in between those sort of locations, and death rates maternal death rates dropped to similar to the midwife um, ward death rate like within months. Yes. Um, no one believed this physician when he tried to publish all these findings. Um, it was it was very contentious and um, this, this, this person ended up having kind of a, a psychiatric demise related to the unacceptance of this pretty clear yeah. um, something that should change practice but it just had to do with antiseptic. So that's why in, in a hospital setting now um you know when you are having an obstetrician deliver your baby they're using sort of sterile practice Mm -hmm. um etc because we we see that very rarely in the modern world or at least in in the western world anymore sure Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And what what is sepsis? Yeah, so sepsis is a broad term that can occur from any type of infection, um, and it, it it basically it has a set of criteria in which people will have fever. They might have high heart rate and low blood pressure. They probably have a high white blood cell count. It's just these sort of markers reflecting your body responding strongly to infection that's kind of gone in a systemic. So as opposed to it being localized, for example, just being contained in the bladder. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get sepsis from a bladder infection, but that has to do when your your body's getting more exposure um, in the bloodstream to that that bacteria and those foreign things. Got it. Um, and it's it, sepsis can be deadly if untreated. Mm-hmm. So we have sepsis guidelines. If we rececognize that that's occurring in the emergency department or the hospital, we should act quickly and initiate antibiotics um, very quickly and and fluids when appropriate and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the gals in our discussion was sharing that um, after after birth, she just felt so weak and tired. And, you know, after birth anyway, you kind of are experiencing that. So I think, you know, almost overlooking it, you know, just thinking it. And Mm -hmm. yeah, she did have um, high levels and needed to get an antibiotic and all of that. So yeah, um, still something. And that's part of why we keep mothers in the hospital for one to two days after to monitor for those early complications of pregnancy, of which certainly Mm -hmm. fever and infection couldn't be one. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. All right. Very good. Mm -hmm. Time for one more question. A woman in her 40s has blood in her urine. What might be the cause of that? Yeah, so it can be tricky in this particular patient population to sort out where the blood is coming from because obviously a woman in her 40s could also have um, uterine bleeding contributing. That would still be normal. That being said, if this person is pretty much certain it's coming from the urinary tract, it should be considered abnormal and should probably be worked up. Um, So the first thing that we would do to confirm that is actually doing um, a urinalysis and having someone look at the urine under the microscope to confirm that there's red blood cells there as opposed to it just being maybe pigmented um, differently from some other reason. Okay. If there if there is truly red blood cells in the urine that isn't coming from a uterine source, again, a, a woman in her 40s probably it would be recommended to do a pelvic exam to make sure the source of bleeding is correctly determined. But that can come from anywhere from the level of the urethra to the bladder to the ureters, the tubes between the kidneys and the bladder to the kidneys. And should be should she should be examined um, just because bleeding would be abnormal. Commonly, this can come from kidney stones or, mm-hmm. um, you know, some abnormalities in the bladder, inflammation of the bladder. Infection of the bladder can cause blood in the urine, but usually causes other symptoms, too. Um, 
there are benign causes of blood in the urine, but we kind of got to rule out all the other stuff to make sure that's the case. So got it. She should be seen. Yep. Yep. Mm. Follow it up. All Mm -hmm. right. Well, before we go, we want to let you know that we will not have a show on SDPB television this week, but you can see the encore episode on protecting moms on Thursday night at seven o'clock central on the Prairie doc Facebook page. We hope you've enjoyed our Prairie Doc radio program today and we'll listen again for Prairie Doc on KBRK brought to you by the Avera Medical Group Brookings. Please follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook and YouTube for free and easy access to the entire Prairie Doc library. Visit www.prairiedoc.org and look for Prairie Doc wherever you find your podcast. My thanks to Dr. Kelly Evans for joining us today. And as Dr. Holm would say, stay healthy out there, people.